Well, hello again, church family. My name's Russ Adams, and I'm the teacher in Department A33. And it's been my privilege to bring some lessons to you earlier this year. And this week, we're going to begin a six-month study of the Gospel of Luke together. Uh, it's going to be a wonderful study, and I like the way that it complements the sermon series in the same book that Pastor Keith is uh, taking us through. So uh, let's take a moment in prayer before we begin. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you for the excellence of your word. And we thank you for the promise that the Holy Spirit will open our minds to understand it and receive it, and then will use it in his work of transforming us to be a bit more like the likeness of your Son and our Lord. You know, especially in this time of year, we love to hear the story of how he came to us to be Emmanuel, God with us. So open our hearts to your truth, Father. We give you thanks and praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, okay, as I said, we're going to be studying the book of uh, Luke, the Gospel of Luke. So let's go ahead and turn there, the Gospel of Luke, uh, chapter 1. I'm going to be reading from the New American Standard Version uh, in our readings today. So let's look at uh, verses 1 through 4 to begin. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word have handed them down to us, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you might know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. So that's the formal introduction to the book, and it gives us an opportunity to talk about uh, Luke and some of his writings. So interestingly, uh, the Gospel of Luke uh, never has in it a statement by the author of who he is, uh, but this has never been a matter of question in the church. This gospel has always been uh, attributed to, to uh, Luke. So that leads to the question, who is Luke? It turns out his name only appears three times in the entire New Testament and never in his own writings. But we know that he was a physician and that he was with Paul on some of his missionary journeys and also during his first and second imprisonments. Luke was a Gentile, and that makes him the only Gentile author in Scripture, which is pretty significant. Uh, he had two major works, this uh, gospel and also the book of Acts, which are actually two volumes of a single work. Uh, but because of their length, they actually make up a, a fourth of the New Testament. Part of that's due to uh, the way Luke writes. He's a very, very careful and meticulous historian. Uh, he also writes to, uh, it seems, a Gentile audience. There's a lot of evidence for that in the, the fact that he takes time to explain Jewish customs and he describes the geography of settings, and that wouldn't be necessary if he were writing to a local audience. So uh, as uh, Luke just explained to us, he has a reason for writing uh, the way he does, he's making a very careful and orderly account of the things concerning Jesus. 
and they were compiled from eyewitness testimonies of those involved. I did want to make a note that in uh, uh, verse 3, the New American Standard says that he wrote it out in consecutive order. That's not really the best translation of that Greek word, it turns out. A better translation is orderly. Uh, Luke's account is is very careful, but it's not always chronological, and that's uh, uh, something that this verse seems to imply. But uh, anyway, uh, another thing that we find in this formal introduction is a person apparently named Theophilus. This is who it's addressed to. And uh, who is that? Well, the name actually is a compound word, and it means lover of God. So it could just be a generic uh, name for any interested reader. But there's kind of a clue here. He uses a formal title with that name, Most Excellent, Most Excellent Theophilus. And that leads many scholars to believe that this may be addressed to an actual high-ranking official. And he may actually be one of the members of Caesar's household that Paul mentions uh, who have become believers. And that would, that would fit very well with what he says here. He's evidently heard a lot and been taught a lot about Jesus. And Luke wants to set him out a complete, uh, exact uh, record of everything that he's been taught. So, so that makes a lot of sense. So that kind of brings us to the lesson text today. Uh, as Luke begins this orderly account. You know, the Bible is about Jesus, cover to cover. It's not two separate books in in between two covers. Uh, When I concluded last week's final lesson in Isaiah, uh, I like to build a bridge between uh, last uh, quarter study in Isaiah and the the coming study that we're beginning today in Luke. And uh, the way I did that was pointing out that there is a very specific messianic prophecy in Isaiah 61. Uh, that was part of our lesson text last week. And this, uh, this messianic uh, prophecy was quoted by Jesus in the synagogue in Nazareth. And that's something we'll uh, study when we get to Luke chapter 4. The reason I did that was it made a very, very nice bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. You know, there, uh, both of these things were you know, strictly concerning Jesus. And that's exactly the point I wanted to make. Well, it turns out that today's passage gives us an even better bridge of that kind. So in my Bible, after the last verse in Malachi, uh, the last book in the Old Testament, there is a large blank space. And I'm going to turn there. I invite you to turn there too, just to kind of take a look at that. So in this large white space, I have a note written that I no doubt uh, got from a sermon or from a Bible study at some point. It says, for four centuries, God chose not to say anything more. Isn't that an interesting thing? Uh, If you turn to uh, uh, the book of Amos, uh, chapter 8, verses 11 and 12, we find a, a prophecy given uh, to the people by God that said that there was going to come a time of famine in the land. And it's not a famine for food. It's a famine for a word from God. And I really think that this time period is, is at least a fulfillment of that prophecy. You know, imagine four centuries in which you know the story is not complete, but God is not saying anything more. Well, that's that kind of brings us to the uh, 
the lesson today in the bridge, uh, that famine is about to break. So let's look at the very last thing that's written in the book of Malachi. Really, really interesting. This is Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. It says, Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. And he will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the land with a curse. So I even uh, uh, checked a reference last night to see if Malachi was chronologically the last uh, prophet. And, and I think he either is, or I think Joel may have come slightly after, but this, this kind of counts for one of the last things that God had to say before that fourth century uh, you know, famine for his word. So remember that prophecy. It's going to figure in today's lesson. Really, really neat. Before the Redeemer would come, God was going to send a forerunner, to announce him. So now we can turn back to Luke chapter 1 and begin our study. We're going to look first at verses 5 through 7. And again, this is Luke writing in his very precise historian mode, so he gives you a lot of detail here. It says, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. And they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both, both advanced in years." Uh, that last and, uh, in another translation I read, it was a but. It's, it basically said, but they had no child. You know, in the culture of the time, a barrenness was considered at least some form of disapproval by God, or uh, at least it brought a measure of shame with it, you know. So, uh, you know, that, that's something missing from their lives. And yet here's this, this very uh, sweet and, and godly couple. They're, they're both Levites. Uh, they're up in their years, and uh, you know probably the time for childbearing has passed, and and they're they're carrying that uh, you know that degree of shame in that culture with them, you know. So uh, now we can continue on to see what God does about this. So we'll be looking at verses eight through ten next. Now it came about while he was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division. According to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering. So I learned from one of my commentaries that there were 34 divisions in the priesthood, and they served in the temple on a rotating basis. Uh, the significant duties were assigned by lot. And so it uh, fell to Zacharias this time to uh, have the, the duty of replenishing the incense in the holy place in the temple. So if you've ever studied the, the layout of the temple, you know that there were certain areas. Of course, the, the most important area of all was the Holy of Holies, where the, uh, where the Ark of the Covenant was. 
And that uh, particular area was screened off and could only be entered once a year by the high priest on the Day of Atonement. You know, so that was an extremely holy place. But surrounding that uh, Holy of Holies was uh, an area called the Holy Place. And there were uh, particular items in there uh, that were specified by the Lord. And one of them was an altar of incense on which incense was to be continually burned. And it represented the prayers of the people. You know, so this was a, a, a really significant duty that he had to go, go into the Holy of Holies and replenish the incense um, while praying himself for the people. And uh, it's recorded here. You know, those that were with him outside were joining him in those prayers. So it was a very prayerful time, a very special thing to to uh, get to do. Uh, the fact that it came to him by lot uh, is uh, this is probably one of those once in a lifetime experiences that you kind of wait for. Yeah. So Zacharias uh, would have been prostrate in in prayer, and of course everyone outside would be praying with him, and. Four centuries of silence from God were about to be broken. So I kind of like that moment of tension we have there. Let's read verses 11 through 17. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. And Zacharias was troubled when he saw him, and fear gripped him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard, and your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn back many of the sons of God to the Lord their God. And it is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Well, start to start with, uh, when the angel appeared before Zacharias, he had the appropriate universal response to seeing an angel. Uh, he was terrified. And uh, anytime we, we encounter angels in Scripture, this is always the reaction of people. They always fall on their faces in fear. Angels are are awesome beings, and uh, when, when they appear before us, they, they inspire that fear. But as is often the case, uh, when the angel is bringing good news, uh, there's that immediate word of comfort, don't be afraid, I have good news for you. Uh, so this angel has very, very good news, uh, along with some instructions. So he and Elizabeth are going to have a son and he is to name this son John. And John is going to be the promised forerunner for the Messiah. You know, just the fact that uh, uh, he and Elizabeth were going to have a son would, would be miracle enough in itself. But then the, the good news goes on that not only is you know, this a, a miracle son, but he's going to be the forerunner of the Messiah. 
And Zacharias would have recognized uh, that promise that uh, the angel spoke as being a quotation from that promise in Malachi. So then we have an interesting question. How is Zacharias going to react to this amazing news? And I'll just let that sit there for a second as we think about it. And then we'll find out the answer in verse 18. It's a little bit surprising. And Zacharias said to the angel, How shall I know this for certain? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. So Zacharias responded with doubt. Isn't that an amazing thing? He, he, uh, he asks for a sign, basically. So just try to imagine the drama of this moment. An angel of the Lord has appeared before him and made an announcement, and he's responded with doubt. You can almost imagine that, that tense silence. So let's see how the angel responds. So this is verses 19 through 23. And the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God. And I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place, because you did not believe my words which shall be fulfilled in their proper time. And the people were waiting for Zacharias and were wondering at his delay inside the temple. But when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them, and he remained mute. And it came about when the days of his priestly service were ended, that he went back home. Well, Zacharias asked for a sign, and he got one. And as the, the account uh, makes clear, eventually the temple uh, service rotation ended, and it was time to go home. So then we come to, you know, having come home with this news, uh, you know, he uh, gets to tell Elizabeth what the angel has promised. Uh, I'm sure he's figured out a way to communicate by now, and, and we find out later that he's, he, he writes on tablets a lot, uh, so he's probably doing something like that. Uh, but uh, we read in verses 24 and 25 that uh, just as the Lord said, uh, and, you know, the angel said this is all going to be fulfilled in the proper time. You know, so God fil fulfills his promises. And we read in verses 24 and 25, After these days, Elizabeth, his wife, became pregnant, and she kept herself in seclusion for five months, saying, This is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked with favor upon me to take away my disgrace among men. So isn't that a lovely response? Her pregnancy itself was a miracle, and she was grateful to God. And that uh, gives us one of our lesson points today. Uh, God has the power to do what he has promised to do. And what he had promised was to send a forerunner for his greater promise, the Messiah, the Deliverer, the Savior that we all need. This was his plan. It was his plan from before the beginning 
And that plan is about to be fulfilled. So let's pray. Thank you, Father, for being the God who carries out his plan and his promises at the proper time. Help us to find assurance in that and to always praise you for it. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, this has been a, a, a short lesson today. Uh, but I don't think that diminishes its impact at all. Uh, for the uh, next lesson, I believe what we do is we continue reading in chapter 1 and just go ahead and read to the end of, the, of that uh, uh, chapter. Uh, the focus is going to be on uh, the next announcements that are made by, uh, by angels. Uh, but we also find the end of the story of what happened to uh, Zacharias and his inability to speak and all that. So, uh, you know, that's also answered in that passage as well. Uh, so I always encourage my class to read the entire uh, background passage and not just the focal verses. Uh, if, if you uh, do that, there's so much that you don't miss. So, uh, uh, you know, make sure that you do that. Uh, I know this is going to be an excellent study in the Gospel of Luke and uh, particularly being in in this part of his gospel, this time of the year is very, very special. One of the uh, characteristics of Luke's gospel is that there's a, a lot of detail given to uh, Jesus' early life that's not found in any of the other gospels. Um, you might wonder, how did he come by uh, this information? And he told us in the beginning, he spoke to the eyewitnesses. And I like to think that a lot of this detail right here uh, he may have gotten by by talking to Mary herself, you know, so that that's an interesting thing to think about. Uh, in any case, we know it's absolutely reliable because it's in God's Word and He sees to it that it's always accurate and that we can rely on it. Uh, so I hope you have a wonderful and blessed week. Uh, enjoy your time in Scripture and uh, always... Uh, uh, remind yourself that whatever's going on, and there's so much that, that uh, seems to you know, tug at us right now and, and uh, cause us concern, that uh, God is a God that keeps his promises. He does everything in the proper time, and he has the power to do everything that he promised. So let's praise him for that as we go through the week. Thanks so much for the time uh, that you've given me, and uh, uh, let's just stay in the scripture together. <music>